What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of On the Margin. I'm your host, Michael Lippolito, and today I'm going to be talking to Lily Frankus of Salience Capital. This was a really, really interesting episode. We covered all things options. We talked about the growth of the market, how that's impacting market structure overall, and how it's sucking liquidity out of the market and increasing volatility. Lily is one of the sharpest minds that I've spoken to point blank when it comes to investing, but especially when it comes to options and market structure. If you're listening to us on Apple, make sure to give us a rating and a review. If you're listening on YouTube or Spotify, just hit that subscribe button. All right, on to the show. All right, Lily, welcome to On The Margin. So exciting to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a lot that I want to ask you. Um, but first, I got to start with, up until very recently, your handle on Twitter was Lily the Options Witch, Frankis. And I noticed we lost the Options Witch. So what happened? So I I mean, I think it's partly due to like the events of the last week where we saw like the NASDAQ, especially the mega cap stocks, you know, start to mega rally. Some people described it more toward the blockbuster jobs report. Doesn't really hold water, you know, when you past, you know, basic sniff tests, but essentially, I mean, my own strategies were not providing good insight for the past couple of days. So actually, I'm pretty happy to say that today, pretty classic no trading day, and hopefully we've returned back to the mean reversionary period. Yeah. Well, your no indicator has actually been great, and I want to get into that uh, in detail later. But let's just start a little bit high level. We're living through a pretty funny time, right, where there's a lot of activity from central banks. There's a lot of fiscal going on, uh, but at the same time, the economy hasn't really recovered. And we're starting to see some, let's call it irregularities in markets. Mm -hmm. I know you talked a lot about the GameStop incident. And at the same time, you, you might think, wow, markets shouldn't be doing so great. But, you know, we just notched another high in the S&P uh, and the Dow, the Nasdaq's not far behind. How do you think about a market like this overall? So there's a couple of forces at play. I mean, one of the most common, you know, understandings of markets is that especially these growth stocks, which seem to power the S&P nowadays, and especially the NASDAQ, are very sensitive to both interest rates as well as the available liquidity in, you know, that can be uh, put into the market. A lot of that was inflated by the actions, of course, of the Federal Reserve during the, you know, COVID crash. As well as before, you know, with not QE4 in September 2019. So we're seeing kind of this ramification of what people are calling the everything bubble, where pretty much every asset is undergoing some level of realized inflation. And this isn't really trickling down as much into the consumer economy because there's still a lot of compressed demand due to the lockdown, for instance, as well as potentially you know, people have just been saving more. You saw the savings rate increase dramatically during the COVID pandemic. But you are seeing that these are leaking toward the more speculative investments because the traditional avenues for investment, like let's say a savings account or treasuries, really were underperforming until recently. Mm, absolutely. And I think one of the things that um, you know I've heard you talk about is this tremendous amount of liquidity that the Fed injected, um, also ultra easy mon uh, monetary accommodation uh, has led to a lot of speculation uh, mm -hmm. in the market. And I know one big part of that is the growth of the options market. Um, this is where I wanna start to get into your specialty here. I'm almost cautious. I had to do more homework for this interview than I think any that I ever had before because options are just so complicated and you have such great understanding of them. Let's just start really, really basic. What 
is an option and why has the market for them taken off so much? So an option is really you can consider this as an insurance contract. So a call option, for instance, is the right but not the requirement to buy a certain stock in this case, but that actually exists on bonds and other financial instruments as well. But it's the right in this example to buy a stock at a certain price at a certain date. So let's say we're looking at, let's say, AT&T, you know, the ticker two. AT&T right now is probably somewhere in the 30s. I haven't checked recently. But let's say we're super bullish on it. And we're saying that it's going to be probably 45 by August of 2021. So I could buy the shares. And I would have to put up 100 times whatever the current price is to get 100 shares. Or if I really believed it was going to go up, I could buy what's called an out-of-the-money call option, where instead of buying shares, I buy the right to buy shares at a certain price, let's say $40, in August of 2021. And what happens with this is call options are interesting because you really just capture a lot of or sometimes all of the upside if you have an at-the-money option, you capture the upside of the stock with a very limited downside. So with in the AT&T example, for instance, a call or buying the shares at, let's say, $35, you could technically lose all of your money. So your max loss there is 35 times whatever many shares you bought, let's say 100. With a call option, you instead pay, let's say, 3 or $4, but while you can only lose when you're long this option three or four dollars you have a finite period of time where the call option exists as well as a certain price it needs to meet for the option to have any what we call intrinsic value on the other side and this is more i guess what you consider classical insurance put options can be bought on a stock if you are bearish or if mm. you're concerned and you have a long position in it and you say AT&T is trading at $35, but the market doesn't look so good. Maybe, you know, Jerome Powell got a, had some head trauma or something. And what happens is I'm going to buy a put option on my shares so I can protect myself from losses. So I, if I was, you know, pretty bearish, I could buy an out-of-the-money put option for, let's say, $25. And it might be like 10 bucks to cover all my shares. But what it means is that I have now capped my downside. So instead of AT&T potentially going to zero, my maximum loss can be whatever the strike of the put option is from where we are now. Mm. And what's interesting is that these options, although in theory they were used for insurance way back when, people now use them for speculation. So instead of, you don't need to have the underlying shares to buy an option. So if I want to be long a put or long a call, it's effectively this expression of, you know, bullishness or bearishness that I believe the market is going to do so-and-so by a certain date. Mm -hmm. And can you, what's your opinion on why there's been that transition? Because I understand when, you know, options have been around for a long time. And as you described, they're originally kind of a boring uh, insurance instrument. And they've recently sort of changed, or at least the perception is that they've changed into a tool um, that especially retail players in the market use to speculate excessively. So what, what's behind this transition? So the, I would say there are two major forces at play here. One is the impact of retail, where you saw 
for instance, Robinhood will introduce zero cost option trading in 2017, December. Mm. That was a big impetus. You saw the rise of these online communities that really focused on option trading versus traditional investing. The most famous, of course, being Wall Street Bets. Wall Street Bets, right. But the secondary one was more this idea of speculation from institutionals. So, I mean, despite what a lot of people think, 2020 was one of probably the best years for hedge funds ever. Mm. And a lot of that was driven, as we've seen, you know, now <laughs> with recently like Archegos and Bill Wong, or if you were alive in August of 2020, you heard about the Nasdaq whale known as SoftBank. You see these large institutional players that some of them are pretty poorly regulated go into these derivative instruments because they allow more leverage and they allow sometimes this expression of, you know, positions without undergoing regulatory scrutiny. Yeah. This is going to, maybe this is just from a complete outsider's perspective, but what is it about the structure of an option that just inherently means more leverage, right? Like why are those just naturally leveraged products? So for options, it's really due to this concept called convexity. Mm. So if you imagine, let's go back to the AT&T example of 100 shares. If AT&T is trading at $34 and now it's at $35, I've effectively made $100 of unrealized profit, 35 to 34. What's interesting about options is they do not behave linearly. So when you have this out-of-the-money option, what you're really paying for is this concept that maybe you will have real value by the expiration date. And what that means is, is this concept called an ex or intrinsic value, where at $34, let's say you can do that, but your options at 40, there's only a small chance it's going to get to 40. At $37, now there's a significantly larger chance it's going to get to 40. What's interesting is that these do not behave linearly. So it actually behaves kind of like a parabola where the closer you get to in the money, the more delta an option has. And delta is this nice little, I guess, um, metric for an option that really represents, in this case, the hedging ratio. So when you have an option contract, because it's not linear, the person who sold it to you or the institution, for instance, has to hedge it because otherwise they are exposed to a ridiculous amount of risk as we saw with like GameStop. And the way that traditionally an option is hedged and there's multiple ways, for instance, depending on the instrument, but the most simplistic way is that the market maker or the person who buys and sells options to keep liquidity in the system that they hedge it by buying and selling shares in the underlying stock. The way that market makers in this case hedge their, when they sell you an option, for instance, a call option, is they start buying shares in the underlying. Mm. And the way they do this, again, has to be non-linear, otherwise they're exposed to market risk. Because if, let's say, they sell you this 34, when AT&T is 34, they sell you a call option for 40, they're not going to go out and buy 100 shares because that might be the maximum amount of you know risk they'll have if it actually ends up what's called in the money. So mm. if AT&T is now $40, but they don't want market risk because what if AT&T 
doesn't go to 40 what if it goes to 25 then now they're lost $900 on their 100 shares so the way that they do this is in relation to the change in delta and this is kind of you know a segue of how options impact a larger system because you know when these out of the money options and in this case an example is call options but the reverse works on puts the way that they work is that if they start going more in the money it starts driving up demand for buying or selling the underlying. And when that happens, that actually changes the price. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe at this time we can talk a little bit about liquidity and the importance of liquidity in a system like this. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what the impact of the growth of options has on liquidity? Also, I'm not sure if you have strong opinions on this, but I know passive, uh, the growth of, growth of passive is like a really important dynamic there as well. So if you want to just talk about kind of the importance of liquidity and how these two big dynamics are, are changing that. Definitely. So liquidity is a really, <laughs> I mean, it's both a, a deep concept as well as a pretty often misunderstood. In this case, we're talking mostly right. about market impact, which is really, if you go to the basic notion of liquidity, it's can you buy or sell an asset without changing the market price? That's what mm -hmm. we consider a liquid asset versus an illiquid one, which I guess to give an example of an illiquid one would be something like a baseball card. If you have a really rare card, you might be able to sell it for a million dollars, but if you had a hundred of them, you probably could not sell it for a million dollars because the market is just not that big. Mm -hmm. On the other side, there's super liquid assets, like literally like oil, where every unit of oil is pretty much the same as long as it's the same grade. So if you buy or sell, let's say, um, you know, one lot of crude, for instance, you're probably not going to change the market price much. And the way options and passive both impact the system is kind of insidious. So a lot of these storybook stocks that I talk about are narrative stocks or even, you know, we can call them speculative stocks really depend on this idea of a greater fool theory. So you buy Tesla, for instance, not because you believe the company is going to return cash flows to you to infinity to justify its valuation, but you buy it because you believe it's going to be worth more later, that someone else is going to pay more for it later. And what really is happening is that most times when you make a transaction in the market, you're actually, your counterparty is a market maker. So in a lot of systems, you are actually never selling or buying shares from, to another trader. You're actually just, it's routed directly to a market maker who then buys and sells from everybody. So their job really in the system is to provide liquidity. And liquidity in general has a positive correlation with value. People are willing to pay more for liquid assets mm. and a negative correlation with the volatility. So when assets are less liquid, so if you look at like the really small penny stocks or in crypto, I guess like a really small market cap coin, their prices tend to... We, we call to... those shit coins, Lily. Exactly. That's we call them shit companies. So shit coins. <laughs> so essentially in those cases, the price can move dramatically because there really isn't any liquidity. There, any kind of transaction can move the price substantially. Both passive and options here because in options we have to hedge in passive because you're actually removing shares from the system like physically when it goes into the creation redemption mechanism of ETFs. 
But in both cases, the growth of these products is actually removing liquidity and reducing the market depth. And when that happens, you have a positive correlation with volatility. Mm, absolutely. So getting back to a couple of those names that you mentioned, uh, Archegos, um, you know, recently there have been, I mean, that was a pretty spectacular loss of wealth, right? And they were using mm. a lot of leverage in the firm in the form of uh, total return swaps, right? Recently, you know, in GameStop, you famously saw uh, Gabe Plotkin at, at Melvin Capital, um, you know, lose like 40% in one month and he had to get bailed out, <laughs> right? It's not great. Um, so I guess my question to you is, and actually, you know, it was funny because on that interview that I listened to uh, with Jim O'Shaughnessy, it's very rare for, to hear in industry people kind of criticize each other. And you, I've actually seen a lot of um, industry insiders or, or hedge fund kind of experts come out and just say, hey, these are absolutely crap risk controls. And I think, you know, one quote that I've heard you say is like, no amount of dead uh, trees on the fire is going to start floor is going to start a fire. You need a match. So I guess mm -hmm. the worry here is contagion, right? And when you have uh, restricted liquidity, heightened volatility, all it takes is for one little push for there to be a much larger reaction or series of knock-on effects. Do you worry about that or kind of think about that? Is the, is the market fragile from that position? I would say the market is pretty fragile. I mean, we kind of observed this. This was around two weeks ago now. The dramatic end-of-day push on SPY mm. was largely driven by most likely, and nobody can ever tell you this for sure, but most likely due to the unwinding of short positions from Bill Wang's fund, for instance. Right. And I would say that was a pretty small case. I mean, it usually takes more of a systemic risk to actually cause, let's say, a market crash. For instance, in February and March of last year, really was the action in the repo markets. And we kind of got a small taste of this in February of this year with this kind of bond taper tantrum. Mm. Didn't really amount to much effectively, but it did kind of kill some of these growth names or these meme names. So I would say it's a bit early to say, okay, this is really going to like ignite the market entirely. Mm. I think most people have kind of this tacit understanding that the market cannot continue to go up indefinitely, but it's also kind of like pretty foolish historically to try to time, you know, a market crash. Yeah. Lily, you're, you're killing my, you can't go up indefinitely. You're killing my dreams on this podcast here. I know. Stocks can only go up. <laughs> Well, I heard that from El Prez, so I believe it. Um, so one other thing I'd be curious to get your opinion on is, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the GameStop blow up, um, there were kind of whispers that there were unwinds from other long short equity players, right? Because people were essentially concerned, oh my God, you know, it, how, how could you be short anything in a market like this? So do you see more dynamics like that at play? Are hedge funds worried that are reevaluating strategies that they don't think they can work? You know, what do you, what's the current state of what hedge funds are thinking about this market? I would say, and I can't say this as an insider, I mean, I'm literally a bioinformatics graduate student, but I would say the major themes are, you know, there's going to be a tightening of leverage after Bill Wong's blow up. You know, I think that most people were shocked that he had literally, I think it was like 600% leverage on these total mm. return swaps, which was obscene. Thankfully, they were very condensed into these small group of growth names so it didn't really have a wider spread ramifications i think that you know risk controls at banks will be substantially you know tightened for these hedge fund players i think in general you know 
there was concern earlier in the year about the short paying thesis going forward. You know, you mm. saw these really classically heavily shorted, you know, names like Build-A-Bear and Express and GameStop and iRobot and whatever. They were all, you know, mooning to borrow some, per, per, like, some verbiage from the Bitcoin community. And it was really concerning to a lot of long short funds. And you saw that in January of 2021, Toward the end of it, we saw some forced deleveraging of positions that, so people would, you know, reduce their exposure to these anomalous black swan-like GameStop events. Do I think this will present like a systemic risk going forward? No. Mm. Um, despite what people want to believe with GameStop, I think we're probably closer to the tail end of the saga than to the beginning. Mm. I do not see this sustained short pain since early March when the second round of GameStop started. Could it start again? Maybe. My metrics are also telling me from when I talk to people that retail participation is going down significantly in the market, mm. which you could argue is tied to the speculative names dying in February maybe, to the reopening, to people spending their stimulus checks on cars or whatever point is, you know, call options declined, you know, volatility is decreasing. So I think in general, it's going to kind of go back to a status quo. Yeah. And you just started to hint at this, but you developed a really interesting uh, indicator called the NOPE indicator. Uh, could you explain this to me as if I'm a five-year-old and not some like advanced five-year-old reading Harry Potter books? Like I'm struggling to make macaroni art type five-year-old. Like I need a very, very simple explanation. It's really complicated, I think, what you've done, but I'm just, you know, give us the overview. So if I'm a market maker, like I said, I have to buy or hedge shares to cover my position so that I say what's called delta neutral or flat on the market. So when this happens to a lot of options being opened versus the current trading volume, this can actually dramatically impact the price because just mm. like passive investing is reducing the market depth, so does options-related hedging. And when this happens, we've seen some interesting effects like the impact on volatility itself, the impact on directionality. One of the things that I talk about a lot is this weird noticeable behavior that when we see a very high end of day nope. It seems to predict the next day being red. We actually just saw that today. We're actually, you know, looking to productionize this model and we have a website called nopechart.com where a lot of people use it to trade these intraday reversals. So it's really interesting to see like real time how the options market is actually having this impact on the real market. Yeah, absolutely. I. You know, in another interview, I've heard you say that basically the growth of options, especially the retail fueled growth of options, has really end up wrecking the market. Is that true? If so, like, what are the what are the dynamics there? I mean, I would say the most degenerate case of this is something that a lot of people are familiar with from the GameStop narrative: this idea of a gamma squeeze, where when you have a lot of these out of the money call options being sold by market makers or bought by non-market makers in this case, then you see these degenerate cases where the price of a company can go up dramatically within one day or sometimes in the matter of hours. And in those cases, you're actually, you are negatively impacting price discovery, of course, because not only do holders of the shares get exposed to significantly higher realized volatility, 
but also it's much more difficult to assign a realistic value of what a share should be worth as well as plot like the future trajectory of how you see the stock evolving. So in a lot of cases, these retail names, especially last year, were dramatically powered by these gamma squeezes, which led to ridiculous price increases. We saw Tesla hit $900 post-split, which was $4,500 pre-split, largely due to this you know, continued cycle of co-option buying. Mm, absolutely. Um, so what's the logical conclusion here? How does this all play out? You know, I, I get the sense that when the SEC looks at the market, they don't love seeing, you know, they obviously called Roaring Kitty, right? Or his other, mm -hmm. his other name, uh, right? To testify. How does this all end? It doesn't seem like this can continue indefinitely. So it really depends, I would say, on... A lot of factors. If we see retail options continue to decline, then it may be a non-starter because why restrict something that isn't really a problem anymore? If we see continued institutional speculation, there may be a, you know attempts by the SEC to rein into it, but it's also very difficult at this juncture given the you know basically bottom-tiered interest rates and all this available liquidity in the system, you're going to have a bubble. Mm. That's really the recipe for a bubble. So it's pretty difficult to say if the SEC will ever do anything about this option related stuff until it actually becomes like a systemic risk. Right. Uh, there are a group of people out there who love to blame the Fed for a lot of the different woes that we see in the market, right? Um, I think on the one hand, you could trace some of this the Fed, the Fed has been essentially implementing ultra easy, um, you know, kind of monetary accommodation for a really long period of time, as we talked about injecting liquidity, and that does tend to lead to excess speculation. What role, if any, do you think the Fed has in some of this irregular activity? It's very difficult to tell. I mean, part of it, you know, you could see based on data I've shared on Twitter that option volume has steadily increased since at least 2017. I mean, it's honestly increased since... 2013, I would say, pretty much at a steady pseudo-linear pace. Mm. Is this related to the Fed's policies? Maybe. Is it related to increased access of retail in the markets, especially with these leverage instruments? I would say for sure. Will this end well? Probably not. <laughs> no. Yeah, I would have to agree. But, you know, I'm not an economist. I would for sure defer to the actual Federal Reserve yeah. on, you know, whether or not this will pan out well. I mean, it could potentially, instead of going out with a bang, it could go out with a whimper where you see this bubble kind of just lead to decreased realized returns in the U.S. asset market for the next 10 years, for instance. Mm, absolutely. So... One one aspect of what we've been talking about I'd like to focus a little bit more on is volatility. Uh, so one of the, um, I guess call it negative externalities, right, of the growth of the options market, growth of passive, uh, kind of choking out the float, um, is that there's inherently increased volatility mm -hmm. that arises. You know, we haven't talked at all about um, one of my favorite subjects, which is Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, one thing I've noticed is a lot of uh, really smart volatility investors that I follow like Eric Peters is a guy that 
uh, jumps to mind. So he ran long vol strategies, did extremely well in 2020, and has now moved into Bitcoin. Do you see um, an asset like Bitcoin essentially being a way to play a long vol strategy? Hmm, that's good. I would say given it really depends on what the cause of volatility is historically. Mm. And when I say historically, it was Bitcoin. So it's history is like two years. Um, <laughs> historically, Bitcoin has been kind of either a leading or coincident indicator of increased volatility on the S&P. We saw it a lot last year that sell-offs in Bitcoin seem to precede market-wide sell-offs. Mm. So in that case, you know, depending on how you play it, I guess on the short side on Bitcoin, you could treat it as a long volatility asset. Mm. That said, I wouldn't consider Bitcoin long as a long volatility asset because realistically, it's kind of followed the normal market movements. It's really, I would say at this point, it's effectively levered better with, you know, the S&P. So while there was a divergence, I would say in October 2020, when Square announced, for instance, that, you know, they would start processing it, Bitcoin kind of went stratospheric. There is, of course, you know, the inflation angle where people are looking at the devaluation of the dollar. And in that case, I would say the market wide would still um, the market wide would still continue to go up because, you know, as the dollar devalues, effectively equities go up in, you know, value, although sometimes historically it doesn't hold. So I would say probably I would not consider Bitcoin at its current juncture a very good long vol strategy. All right, cool. Fair enough. Um, where do you think the opportunities are for investors around volatility? I think... I mean, it's really twofold. I mean, if we exist in this universe with decreased market depth, you know, going forward, and whether due to options, whether to go with the passive, the impact of volatility will be more pronounced on returns. I mean, there's a pretty famous concept called variance drag, where, you know, if you have a stock that goes down 20%, now you're at 80% of its previous value. If it goes up 20%, you're now at 96%. So you ostensibly lost 4%, even though down and up have basically matched. So mm. in this case, you know, understanding tail risk and understanding how to hedge your positions can actually lead to increased returns. And I think in the 2010s, you know, one of the largest trades we saw, you know, come to life with a short volatility trade, which famously blew up in 2018. Are we going to return to that for some time? Perhaps, especially mm. with VIX now in the toilet. But I think that, you know, in general, volatility is here to stay. And by understanding it more effectively and designing your portfolio to accommodate tail risk, you can actually get increased returns. Yeah. There's a guy named Diego Parilla. Really, uh, he, he um, is the chief investment officer at a fund uh, based out of Spain. Uh, he's kind of famous for this concept of anti bubbles. Right? So if you go by the George Soros definition of a bubble, it's um, an asset which the price is artificially high due to some you know, constraint uh, in the market, so to speak. So an anti-bubble is the opposite of that, um, which is an asset whose price is artificially low because mm -hmm. of some constraint in the market. Uh, Diego, you know, he came on uh, an episode of ours the other day, and he was talking about volatility 
um, as an anti-bubble because basically a lot of uh, the Federal Reserve's um, monetary policy and action has basically served to reduce, uh, kind of artificially reduce volatility and therefore mispriced it in the market. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree? That's, I would say it's a very subjective question. I think in general, we saw a lot last year after the coronavirus crash that volatility was prematurely bid up, which led to a lot of some Carson talks on Twitter, Vanna flows that led to, you know, these dramatic increases in the market, the most obvious being right after the presidential election when nothing happened. So the market decided to go boom. I would say that, you know, understanding, as I just previously mentioned, understanding that volatility has been growing and probably has a significant and important place in understanding tail risk for your portfolio will be thematic of the 2020s. Mm. Would I say that the Federal Reserve, whose objective is to reduce, let's say, volatility in the credit markets and make sure that the repo markets function properly, would I say their responsibility and their objective is to reduce volatility in equity markets? Mm. Probably not really. You know, there you could argue, of course, it's kind of like an Ouroboros. So once you do mm. one of those, you're going to do all of them. I would say that, you know, long vol is still something important to consider, you know, going forward. And I think the market is in a pretty fragile state. So by understanding, you know, volatility and making it a small but significant portion of your portfolio, you can lead to better returns than, you know, not. Yeah. And I think that, you know, considering it from a portfolio perspective is super important. You know, you look at where the wealth is concentrated from an age and demographic standpoint, it's still largely concentrated with the baby boomer generation. And they have the most to worry about volatility because, you know, if they suffer a drawdown of, you know, 20, 30, 40% in their portfolio, um, they don't have as much time to make it up as the rest of, of us, right? Uh, so that's something I think they should be particularly concerned with. You know, from a portfolio protection standpoint, how do you think about, you know, uh, volatility hedges and, and kind of just protecting yourself? So that's an interesting question. I would say that most investors probably do not have the time as well as the knowledge to design an effective volatility hedge. Mm. In general, there's a lot of up and coming ETFs that have demonstrated convexity in their payouts. So I think a good example was SPY-G or something that effectively is a structured product where you know they own shares but they also buy puts and buy calls to construct this kind of collar on their holdings so i think you know more savvy investors could really look at those strategies as a replacement for let's say vu or you know spy itself would it i would say the main caveat with a lot of these strategies is that they're fairly new and some of them did not perform particularly well, for instance, during the COVID crash, which you would, I guess you would expect that, you know, for a long vol strategy, if the market That's when you kind of want VIX, it to perform. Exactly. If the market hits, you know, the VIX hits the 80 you're, and you're not doing well long vol, you might want to reconsider what you're doing. But in a lot of cases, you know, these are really not set in for strategies. So you saw, for instance, Universa famously made around 4,000% during the COVID crash. But if you look at, let's say, a long vol ETF for tail hedging like 
tail, you know, because it's literally named tail, mm. it did not perform well right after the crash. So unless you do this continuous rebalancing of your positions, which again, I wouldn't expect most retail investors to actually do like daily or monthly rebal, then you might have lost money even with the outperformance during COVID. Yeah. So let's just kind of sum up everything that we're talking about here. We're looking at um, the two big forces that we've talked about from a market structure perspective, growth of growth of passive, growth of the options market. And I think, you know, narrative is a really important force to talk about because there was this narrative, especially around GameStop, that you kind of had this retail hero who are out there buying these YOLO options, right, against kind of the evil shorts. And I think for better or worse, that's what the legacy of this particular chapter in market history is going to read. What do you think about this narrative? You know, who kind of won at the end of the day? And what does this, this just teach us about investing? I would say, I mean, I've had a lot of discussions about this on Twitter with people or in previous podcasts, but these idea of narratives or, you know, now we call them memes really have been around forever. You know, you saw this in the 2018 lead run, you saw this with Bitcoin, you saw this in, in the 2000 tech bubble, you saw this in, you know, the 2007 crash. Like, they've always been a force in the markets, no matter what the market quality is, no matter, you know, time and space is part of just human nature because people tend to prefer these stocks with a pleasing story. And, you know, as I talked about a lot of my posts on GameStop and this idea of the narrative cycle and, for instance, comparing it to, you know, Joseph Campbell's monomyth, it really helps a lot of these narratives gain traction once they have a compelling story. And I think, you know, in this, narr- in this narrative, in this time and space, of course, the market makers and the hedge funds are the evildoers, you know, maybe part of it is actually deserve but you know it's pretty common during bubbles for people to hate shorts and to hate the market makers so i think maybe we're at the tail end of the gamestop saga i think it was probably the most emblematic of the 2020 bubbles Mm. but you know i don't think it's the final bubble i think we will probably see you know another gamestop sooner than we would think yeah all right, with that comforting thought, uh, I'll start to wind down here. Uh, Lily, I want to give you some time to talk about Salience Capital. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing with that. Yeah, so I work with a couple of folks. I mean, for our first product, we actually created NopeChart.com, which is this website you can view to see the note models, see it in real time. We're actually building bots and trading strategies to take advantage of this. So Salience Capital is really this platform that I've created more to share like quantitative research. I'm hoping to build, you know, more models. One of the biggest, you know, areas of interest I have is predicting these, you know, gamma squeezes, as people say. So it's really, I would say, more this vehicle for me to like publicize and I guess eventually sell quantitative research. Awesome. Very cool. And if people want to find out more about you, you know, what's the best way to do that? Nope underscore ICS underscore Lily at Twitter. Nice. Amazing. All right, Lily. Well, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you. I have learned a lot. I hope everyone in our audience has as well. Um, I'll have to do this again soon. Thank you.